Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Sleeping with the dead. <laughs> yeah, it's the holidays, and this uh, broadcast is going to try and touch upon that subject. And just what could that mean? I don't think I'm. I don't think it's about necrophilia, where you actually take a dead body and sleep with it. And there are people that do that. Uh, and plenty of horror stories <laughs> and actual police records of people that do that. Um, I think when I'm talking about sleeping with the dead, I'm talking about, uh, well, at least for me, um, you know, this is kind of a taboo subject. <laughs> it's not about necrophilia, but it's about losing someone. I think beyond uh, being with somebody, you know, in a relationship especially, a friendship, you know, where they're there all the time, and then suddenly they're not there. Uh, whether they're dead or they just get up and leave you, are you, as is the case, leave them? I think when you really love somebody, especially when they die, um, you have all these sort of laid down pathways in your brain of how you res have responded to that person. And, I, and you feel a certain level of comfort with them. You know, this is a, in a romantic relationship, or a relationship that goes beyond just talking, you know, kissing and hugging and other things, you know, sleeping with someone, you know, where you're, where you're sharing really intimate feelings with each other. And, you know, like I say, it becomes like breathing air or drinking water. It's just something you do. There's no, I'm always, it's always interesting to see how, how obsessed with sex <laughs> that some people are that really don't get what they need out of sex or they get something else other than love. Uh, and there's nothing more profound than sexuality if you're in love with someone. Yeah, it just goes beyond anything else. It's like the sacrament of oneness, of togetherness without really having to say anything. It can be painful too, I mean in terms of Oh, in terms of it really can connect to things that you would rather not connect to, and I have some friends that would rather not engage in any kind of intimate relationship. They're just, they're, they're kind of done with it because it's more of a painful thing where it consists of, of heartache and, and trauma. But when that person, you've been with them a long time, or when you've been with them, and you know there's a certain way you touch and you talk, you don't even have to talk. You're just there and you can feel each other. You can, you feel this level of comfort and oneness that goes beyond talking. I think animals are really good at this, especially as I always talk about coyotes and wolves. They're not talking. <laughs> I mean, they have different sounds they make, but these are incredible creatures in terms of body language. Wow. That, I think people should look more into that as an actual... I mean, I, I have a... I've had students in my art classes that were um, mute. They couldn't talk. And uh, it didn't seem to be that big of a deal with them when they're with each other. You know, there's a, I think there was even a couple 
that were married. There's my. <laughs> there were a couple that were married in one of my, you know, one of my art classes. I'm trying to remember, and I think they were both mute, and one was deaf, and they had a very intimate and beautiful relationship. So I don't know if you have to talk. I don't even know if talking's. It's just something we do sometimes that, you know, where does it take us? And then this gets back to this whole thing in our culture right now, uh, in the world where we're just texting all the time and we're just, and the person isn't there. Or, you know, the person can be there and nothing goes on. I know relationships where two people are together and they don't ever talk about anything other than the weather and you know you're here and I, you know I, they've been with each other for years and they don't even know how, <laughs> how the other person feels about things I mean the deeper part of that person I, I'm surprised at some of my friends that say you know my husband doesn't know anything about me and he doesn't care to know anything about me I just do the dishes and do the laundry and he comes home and he pays the bills and you know we sleep together and by mistake had a couple of kids but we know he doesn't know anything about me you know it's just this habitual so I don't know if, it, if you can blame it on texting or on talking too much or just the fact that we don't really we don't really connect to what's inside of us the more honest feelings and for one reason or another um there's this really interesting uh, riddle that's that's greatly misunderstood um, on some of the graves of deceased people in uh, ancient Greece, there was an epitaph on the grave marker. And it's also sort of a little riddle. It's a pun that's used a lot of times in philosophical debates and dialogues. Uh, Plato used it. Other people did, if you read, uh, if you read Plato and his dialogues. Soma Sima, meaning basically the body is a tomb. Uh, a lot of religious people, especially Christians, like to interpret that as meaning. The body is this kind of um, negative place that we suffer all the time. You know, almost Buddhistic. Like, the body is this bag of bones that just causes immense suffering. Disconnects us from the greater sense of, of wholeness. So, basically, uh, Soma Sima is this kind of... Uh, question that the deceased that's buried or dead, you know, it's in the grave, asks you as you're remembering them or, you know, you're standing there at their grave, uh, Soma Sima, body's a tomb, meaning that um, are you, even though you're alive in your body, are you dead? Are you really living the kind of life where you're alive, where you're enjoying things? where you're approaching thresholds, where you're experiencing beautiful color, nature, uh, love, being with someone. You know, all the things that come with really being alive. Or are you dead, even though you have this body that you think's alive, are you dead to life? Are you just, are you an automation? Are you a robot? Are you just working in the fields? and then going home and doing your habitual life, you know, making love to your wife, having kids, but you're never really living your life. And with the Greeks, that was a really important process, is being fully alive, 
you know, in these uh, things like the Eleusinian Mysteries, the Greater and Lesser, which is all about passing from life into death. But also in the middle of this was this being alive, alive to the earth, alive to the seasons, alive to Persephone when she comes from the land of the dead into the springtime and everything becomes alive. So it was also a celebration of life. And you know, many of uh, Greek dialogues and, and uh, one of my favorite, the Phaedras, is are you alive? Are you experiencing life? Now, Phaedrus is one of my favorites to read by, by Socrates, written down later by Plato, because you know Socrates didn't believe in writing anything down. He was like, you got to be there, you know, in person. He was all, and especially the Phaedrus talks about this whole thing of being with a person, feeling them. Uh, listening to the speech in person without writing it down because it can always be reinterpreted when you write it down especially legally attorneys and lawyers can manipulate the words so it's, it's about being there it's about being alive it's also about the incredible process of dying of leaving your body of going into the next world this whole concept of angel wings uh, the process of the cicada living under the earth and then merging up into the daylight of coming out of the, its tunnel in the earth and getting wings and flying in the sun and, and the beautiful warmth and, and having this song that lasts only for a short time. And the cicada lives years sometimes in, in, inside the, underneath the, the soil of the tree and the grass and then comes out for the short time to really be alive and to and to to love and to you know and to have its babies and and then they go back into the earth or just it's just full of all these beautiful things about being alive feeling the beauty of life of sex of of passion um and in in the experience of being there and so getting back to soma sema in remembrance of the dead and telling you hey guess what bob now you're standing there looking at me and I'm dead, you're going to be dead someday, maybe sooner than you think. And in this short time that you're alive, what are you going to do with your body? What are you going to do with this beautiful experience of being alive? Are you going to love? Are you going to hate? Are you going to be a warrior? Are you going to be a slave? Are you going to, are you going to feel the life that you have? Smell the flowers, walk in the wild, um, experience your children and experience the, the, the beautiful moonlight and music and, and these beautiful plays the Greeks had and, and, and correspondence with your fellow man. Or are you just going to be dead? Are you just going to sit there like adult and just live your life with no meaning in it, with no incentive? And I think especially in our modern age where so many of us have turned into automations and we just follow a process that we've seen our parents follow and they've seen their parents follow. You get a job, you, you go into debt, um, you build a house, you have all these mortgages, you have all these credit cards. Um, you're working, 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 hoping to retire. Something that's not too common anymore is a full retirement. You switch jobs every two or three years. Um, and you just, it's just this instability of always trying to be economically ahead. Or these people that have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. This small group of people that seem to control 
life in the world and especially in the United States um, you know the happiness of man that was what the United States was supposedly all founded on was getting your freedom your land building your house having a farm you know and um, enjoying life getting out of this sort of rigorous rigorous society where there were where there's royalty and upper-class people and then there was just the servants you know and there's the servitude that you were born into and never got out of you know just a stiff caste system that um you could never get out of america was supposed to be about getting out of that but now we see that the american dreams become this sort of um sort of like almost slavery to something you just never quite get you're always buying things you know every minute it's an advertisement every five minutes in your show you're gonna get another ad of what you should buy uh what bank will give you a loan on this car um, you know, what new thing can you have? Because everything gets old after three or four months. you got to have something new. And throw away, throw away, buy, buy. And you're constantly in this working at a factory, hoping, you know, to have that two- or three-month vacation. You know, I talk about this a lot. And this is kind of extending the somasima. But I think, you know, this is an interesting epitaph because it's all about um, this question. Are you really, even though you think you're alive, you're really dead? Has the war hurt you so bad? Has someone ripped your heart out so much that you died? And that you might as well be dead, my friend. Are you a walking suicide? <laughs> the dead person, in a way, is addressing and saying, Wake up! Be alive! That's what's so beautiful about the Phaedrus. Is Socrates is saying, Give me that stupid speech you have rolled up. <laughs> you know, tell me what, what, what you heard. I don't want you to read it to me. I don't want you to write it down. In fact, I would have liked to have been there and heard the speech, heard it given, the lecture, instead of you translating it for me. You know, it's not just about how to speak and give a speech and how to be a polished public speaker, but it's about living life. Phaedrus is all about this beautiful sense of how, how incredibly short our lives are. And what a beautiful flower they can be, even in the experience of pain and sorrow, if we can take that in and feel it, in contrast to the tremendous joy that we can have, in contrast to the depression we might have, and in the seasonal things that come, there's this joy in, in being fully alive. So Soma Sima is this very interesting little riddle about being open and awake to the, to the experience of your life. I, I think, too, in true art and literature, that the dead can speak to us and, and bring the, the philosophies and the, the painting, the music, the experience of a beautiful novel into the present tense and, and, and put it inside of you. And, and so they're not dead, they're alive, their philosophy, their experience, and you can read about it. And, you know, that's an interesting thing, the way time flows in a novel, a story or a play, and how it can be accelerated or slowed down. Any director, any person that makes a movie, even an advertisement, knows they have this issue of time to work with. It's interesting how a really good movie can seem... It just goes by so quickly. You're like, I mean, I went to a couple of movies that are like three and a half, four hours long, and I was like, I couldn't believe it lasted that long because it seemed like it was only, <laughs> it seemed too short to me because it was so good and I was so involved in the process. We, I mean, we use this thing, oh, this, this painting, 
this poem, this, um, this piece of music is timeless. And, and that's part of the riddle too with Soma Sima is the beauty of being fully alive is timeless. I mean, you only have the present. And then when you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> Soma Sima, the body's a tomb. Whether you're dead or alive, depending on, especially if you're alive, if you're not open to the, to the experience of, uh, of, of life. And I think that's one of the things, you know, when I was a boy, especially with um, uh, film and movies on, on the TV, because, you know, I'd watch them with my mother, who was really well-versed in narratives and movies and how you make them and what they mean. And so the, the sheer enjoyment of that. But there was this riddle about, about film, about photography, about photos. But the, the, the thing that intrigued me as a, you know, as a boy, I don't say like in kindergarten or first grade, maybe even before that that i couldn't understand are the people in the tv because you know my because i can't touch them but i can see them on this screen i can see them acting you know if you've ever been to a, a play and i used to go to a lot with my mother um and my both my mother and stepfather were sort of like uh amateur actors and my mom did write all these plays and so uh, i guess they were professional for a while because they got paid for putting on productions um, it's, it's, it's interesting to go to an actual uh, play with living people in there, like the Greeks used to do. It's, it's a little different than when you're watching something on TV, videotape or a digital play of a movie. And, and at some time, you know, the director knows, the person that makes a movie, that the person watching will make this kind of um, switch where the actors and what you're watching, it goes this interplay between what's in your mind and what you see on the, on the screen. You know, Orson Welles talks a lot about this, this interplay between what's in your mind and what's out there on the stage or what you're watching on TV. And I think even a good writer knows that um, a lot of the novel and book will play out in the person that's reading it in their mind. And so each person may have a, a different experience with, with, with that story. The really powerful stories um, grab a, a large audience of people and they can, and they can play with this dynamic of, of the characters and, and, and kind of like um, put themselves into the, into the story. So, yeah... So you have all these people on the screen, you know, I talked about this in the, in the previous episode, that are dead. They're not alive anymore, but they're breathing, their eyes are moving, uh, um, they're walking around, they're expressing emotions, they're falling in love. You know, this is a movie, but, but where are they? Why is that, why is that happening? Well, it just plays, you record on a, on a video camera or, or film camera, and it's put on the film, and then there, there they are. But the greater question is, I know there they are, but how come? Why are they on, on that film? Where, where's that coming from? And especially, they're not there. They're dead. You know, you, I can, you can watch some of these silent movies now. Pandora's Box, which I've watched a hundred times, with Lu Louise Brooks, who is considered probably the greatest uh, female actress of all times, who got really sold short. Anyway, she's uh, amazing. You can't stop watching this. Not only is she one of the most beautiful women ever on film, but she breaks apart the story and, and, and makes it so real. Later on, when Louise Brooks was interviewed, you know, about her life uh, before, because she, she disappeared into obscurity because fame was just 
way too much for her sensitivities and the kind of uh, person that she was. Actually, fairly shy underneath the surface of this world, this world famous actress. Uh, and she talks about how, for her, acting wasn't acting at all. She did what was what she was. She acted what her life really was. And so, you know, you see something about her, in the, especially in these two German silence she did in the late 20s. But you see something in Louise Brooks that now actresses, it's, it's fairly common, you know, with method acting and other things like that. But really, Louise Brooks was the only woman that, that actually introduced this, like, you're not acting, it's actually really you on the screen. <laughs> And and it comes across as as an actual real story, time period that that when you know when Louise Books was 22 or 23, the most beautiful woman in the world. She didn't think that. <laughs> she really didn't see herself like that. She had this, this amazingly deep, gifted individual that was incredibly lonely in spite of all the fame she had. Mainly because she was such so brilliant. She wasn't some good-looking uh, airhead. She was exceptionally intelligent and uh, gifted and artistic in many different ways. And she suffered greatly because of her, uh, her ability to feel things so deeply. Her autobiography is, is just amazing. If you want to read a book that gives you insight into being famous, that's a good one but also insight into a very gifted and sensitive person that just never got realized until it was too late. So, you know, and I, it's interesting, the living and the dead. You know, you have pictures of someone, especially if it's someone you love. I have some beautiful pictures of, of my um, deceased girlfriend, Tiva. Um, and they're really, uh, you know, it's a moment in time that's frozen in the photo. Uh, and you can go in there and you can make it move with your imagination and you can feel them. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a hard subject. I didn't think this would be so difficult because it's kind of like not verbal. Um, yeah, and so I have this beautiful uh, framed three photos on my nightstand uh, of a a woman in France, I think during World War II, and she's riding on a train, and behind her on this, you know, on the passenger train, she sits in the seat, is this, is this bright sunlight on the, on the German, it might be French, French, because I get a feeling it's a German landscape behind her, and um, she's sitting on the seat, the sun's shining in the window on her, she's exceptionally beautiful, and, and ghost-like, and, and you can tell whoever took this picture loved her. They just caught, and because of her comfort and the look in her eyes that she's looking at someone that she loves, um, at least for me. I purchased these three photos. There was a series of six, but I got three um, taken on this, uh, these old um, small cameras I used to carry in the 1940s, uh, you know, with little, just little cameras. They weren't the big, huge, gaudy things that we have now and the aperture and stuff and uh, um, maybe even it may have even been a box camera but the light qualities and the way the you know the film was developed uh, in a dark room and then lay, you know printed out it's just exceptionally beautiful you just couldn't make anything like that it's like an Edward Curtis uh, 
photo of, of indigenous Native American people. You know, he used to do these things on glass negatives. Uh, I have uh, uh, a, nit a nitrate film print uh, by Keith Moon of a, it's, it's, it's quite famous, uh, of a Diné Navajo young man. And I have an actual photo that he developed from a glass negative and then put it on uh, the nitrate paper. It's, it's priceless. Um, it, it's just, it's just amazing. You can look at that thing for hours and it has the actual fingerprints of Moon on there from when he handled, you know, when he was developing the, the picture on paper from the negative, the way, if you've ever worked in a dark room. So you can see as, he, as you dip the photographic paper in the acid, you know, once you've, you've burned the image on from the, the camera it's put on there, uh, all, and you know, you can tell he went to different trays and he made this sort of uh, aesthetic with the paper that's just absolutely unbelievable. And you can look at this photo forever. The, the old silence, especially in German express, expressionism, were made on nitrate film. Nitrate film is perhaps the most beautiful medium ever created that moves. If you've ever seen a nitrate film, I've seen one, you have to go to special uh, places now because nitrate's very flammable. It can burn up. You know, whole uh, movie theaters used to burn up. <laughs> You know, if the nitrate film gets hot, it's very flammable and, and it starts on fire. So, you, you know, it got to the point you couldn't really use this anymore. But if you see something on nitrate film, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. You know, there's this, there's this uh, ghost-like light, you know, if it's passed through a projector and put on a screen that just is untouchable. It just, it's so dreamlike um, and so... Uh, beautiful and ghost and it's ghost-like that it's just it, there's nothing like it and people used to watch this stuff all the time and you know took it for granted now now we have all this digital relay and we try to make our stuff look like these old films and but it's not the same thing getting back though to this whole thing of the dead you know we're we're what does that mean when you have a photo of somebody that you love that you can take your mind and look at it and it can make it move. You can feel them. You can put your arms around them. You can kiss them. Or as I've been talking about, you know, after a person dies that you've been spending your whole life with, you go to bed with them every night. Not just for sex. They're, they're part of you. You're part of them. It's the comfort in knowing, and the security of knowing someone's there. Uh, their touch and their feel, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and talking about a dream or just saying, hey, can you put your arms around me? I'm kind of, I'm kind of scared a little bit. Or, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm sick or I don't feel good. Can, can you give me a kiss or hold me? Um, yeah, and when that, when suddenly that person is gone, especially in the act of tragedy or some event you had no control over, they're just, I mean, without warning, they're not there anymore. What? what do you do you know and i think what happens you just you know you you go in the house you see their things you see the objects they wore uh, and tiva's instance she has this beautiful little bike that she rode with a green milk crate on the back <laughs> that's a tough one because that's the last thing i seen her on and she took such good care of that bike and 
you know, she had this little milk crate that she was so good at attaching all the uh, bungee cords on the back, and she she was always very neat about everything. And this little bike, she had it for a long time, and she took good care of it. You know, it was a it was an expensive bike too, and it just it was made little for her because she wasn't very big. You know, as I've said before, maybe five feet tall and a hundred pounds, um, and uh, very athletic individual too. Um, that's all that's left, you know. I mean, it's like it's like <laughs> you know where 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 is she now? And I have this, and you know, and. and you have these objects. If you've and I've talked about Proust's book uh, *Swan's Way*, uh, this whole this series of books that he wrote, um, *In Search of Lost Time*, I think is the other title, which I, I like better than *Swan's Way*. Um, and you know, this is and when when Proust wrote this in the early part of the 20th century, when narratives were so powerful, you know, the Victorian age, everything was a story that had to be crafted a particular way. Proust introduced what we now call stream of consciousness, uh, inner dialogues. That there really isn't a story. There really isn't a story. It just, it, or if there is, it unfolds uh, almost unconsciously. And so it isn't really about a narrative, you know. But it's about as it's about the way we think. It's about dreams. It's about longings it's about and this is where I'm going objects he has this thing called involuntary memory and there's there's some similarities between Proust and Freud I don't know if anybody's ever drawn those but if you've read both those people this whole preoccupation with things underneath the surface of our lives things that we suppress things that we never talk about our dreams you know what's going on in our mind when we're talking to somebody we're saying one thing and thinking another the stream of consciousness looks at both what you're thinking and what you're saying and how you reflect back on memory uh, how you feel about pain you know it's it's pretty common now uh, and you know James Ulysses uh, James Joyce's Ulysses is about this stream of consciousness Virginia Woolf um, you know, it became kind of a, a more of a popular thing, but Proust, that we, you know, we just take it for granted now in a lot of our modern novels, but, you know, early on in the 20th century, it was a little bizarre, and Proust really jumped into this whole thing of stream of consciousness. All the things taking place, you know, when you're sitting there on a bed, or when you're laying down and you're thinking back about nostalgia, you know, about memories, about heartache about lovers about death the things we, that are hard to talk about he he really is a master at this you know this stream of consciousness and one of the things he uses is this thing there's this process called involuntary memory so you know you hear a song or you see an object and it sets off this whole barrage of memories that you didn't even know were there. Sometimes if you hear a song, it just recalls vividly, you know, oh, there's my mother, and there she is baking bread, or out in the garden, you know, cutting flowers to bring in and put in a vase. She's been dead for 20 years, and yet the, the memory is so vivid and so powerful, you can feel everything. It's almost like you're there. And the taste of, of, of something, that's one of the things he uses in, in his novel is tasting things, is looking at colors, 
um, and how they set off these these memories that are that are sometimes locked inside of us. You may not have thought of something for years, and suddenly somebody says something, or you hear a song, or if you see a painting, it just sets off this whole process of memories that are extremely vivid, just like a movie. And so, um, let me grab some coffee here. <laughs> So you have a house when someone dies or passes away, a lover's gone, or if a relationship ends and that person leaves, especially if you're not expecting it, they just say, hey, I'm out of here, or they don't call you. Weeks later they say, hey, I'm not coming back home, I, I, don't, I don't love you anymore. And you have all these memories that are suddenly de detached. I don't want to see you anymore. I don't want to sleep with you anymore. I don't want to touch you anymore. In fact, I'm, you know, they come and get all their stuff when you're gone. They come in the house and take all their stuff and they call you and say, and you come home to an empty house and you're like, oh my God, everything's gone. Yeah, while you're at work, I came and got everything. I don't want you, I don't want to be connected to you anymore. In fact, I'm going to burn all this stuff. You know, fuck you. You know, sorry about that word, but that's kind of what they do. And suddenly all these memories and all this connection that you had are severed in the most cruel way possible. What do you do with that? And I think what happens is it's a process, especially if it's very traumatic and like a war or something like that or the death of someone or when someone dies. Um, you know, as a medic, I've been connected to that. You know, there should be some really awful things that happens when someone dies, especially tragically. Whoa. You just kind of have this box, you gotta lock it away, and, and that stuff can catch you off guard. But you're, you're, you're with a friend, and you're going for, through, you know, it's come to visit you, and you're going for a walk with them in the parks. And it's, it's one of those warm November days, and the autumn leaves are falling down, and you're walking, and you're talking about high school, and, you know, playing football, or, or whatever you did. And suddenly, your friend starts humming a song, just kind of unconsciously, and bam! It recalls this memory. I had a, a, a girlfriend in high school. She died young. Um, and the song recalls the memory of her. And just, you're, you're, you're just, or a car passes by, you know, an old car. And suddenly you remembered, oh my God, a, you know, a car just like that one ran over a person. They brought him into the emergency room in the hospital. I had to watch them die because there's no way to keep them alive because the trauma was so bad and it pulls you back into that so stored inside of us are all these these memories and I think what you do when, when they're severed and the person dies or there's a tragedy or they leave is you kind of like do these loop this loop thinking where you go over and over and over because the mind's searching for the actual fi real physical contact that you once had that's not there and I, I don't know if you burn out the... I don't think you do, because we're talking about how these things are locked in your mind until you die sometimes. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. My novel, Timelines, or Sarah, looks into this, this element heavily. If I ever, like I said, if I ever get, <laughs> get it done. Um, so it's, it's a, what is a dream? You know, when you're, and I have talked about this too, when you're in the dream world, it's so real. Everything's there. That amazes me. What amazes me about a dream until you wake up, it's totally real. 
there's nothing fake about a lot of a lot of dreams. So some are, you know, trivial and ridiculous and surreal and you know, yeah, that's a dream. You look in the mirror and you stick your tongue out and it's full of teeth. <laughs> you know, there's teeth all over your tongue. Even in the dream you kind of know, you know, Dave, um this is a dream. But there's a, you know, like I've said before, there's these powerful dreams where it's everything is totally real. And, and in fact, it's so real that when you wake up, there's this, there's <laughs> exactly, there's this um, longing to go back into that dream because, you know, and, and, and I've dreamed of Tiva. Um, <laughs> those are rough. She's there and she's holding you and you're talking and she's not dead anymore. Everything's fine. She's laughing and she's like, hey, Dave, can I have a kiss? And you give her this, give her this beautiful kiss and, and, and you, the sunlight's coming through the window and it's on you and it's just a beautiful day out there and you're making these plans to go to a cafe and have coffee and talk some more and you're with the person you love most in the whole world and bam you wake up and they're not there anymore man do you panic it's like it's like it's like they died all over again and you got to go through it again and this is what i mean sleeping with the dead the memories and you know the the process of how do we go carry on with our life you know tribes especially the Hopis have very intricate process in someone dying and once they're they're deceased and they're gone you don't talk about them anymore because they're busy in the world uh, in in their world uh, you know because the world of the dead's not dead it's just like this world and they're busy with their life they have there and when you start to sorrow and think about them, call their name, it, it brings them back into this other dimension that they're no longer a part of. And because Hopi and Zuni and some of these people for thousands of years were uh, migrating clans and they're on the land and they don't have any central place that they're staying like, like now, um, a death can really detain you. It can, it can, it can really hold the clan back hold your your traveling group back you don't have time because you have to survive and if a person's dead sorrow sorrow can kill you it can kill the rest of your family if you're detained with sorrowing all the time then you can't work and you're not efficient and that's very important when you're migrating around this intense landscape for thousands of years and you're in your hunting and you're doing all these very heavy workloads to survive there's not a lot of time to sorrow and so um, some of these tribes um, are very there's a lot of um, not talked about things that are that are very sacred and they're very uh, strict and there's this kind of observance that when that person's gone you let go because the ghost of that person the memory of that person can can actually kill you the sorrow can be so deep that you it, it can kill you and it can it can really damage other people and so there's a lot of forbiddens and restrictions be due to to all this uh, experience over thousands of years grieving I guess in some ways is a luxury that we have more of now and yet there's something about that let me grab some coffee here I don't know I know with wolves in particular, if, uh, if a family member dies in a pack, this has been observed by several scientists and people that aren't scientists that know wolves, like me, 
they can grieve for months and weeks. The pack just kind of shuts down and does just minimal stuff to get by. And you know they're grieving this, this, this member of the pack. Um, they'll go back to where she died or, or the little wolf pup died. And they keep going back. You know, elephants are famous for this. They, they're, they're sorrowing. They're expending precious energy. And there's this act of, of heartbreak. And it's really powerful with wolves and coyotes. Wow. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, 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 a, these are very sentient beings that a birth, uh, their happiness of being with each other are vital parts of their living process. It isn't just about survival. It isn't just about getting, getting on with the process and forgetting it. So I don't know. I don't know if humans have just developed, especially in modern times, a way. You know, this is what Freud was all about. Uh, uh, depth psychology is all about. Jung is in early psychology, especially Freud, was about this whole world that we suppress. That, you know, we, we have more than one personality. That we do, we do and say one thing and do another. In fact, you know, the whole Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson in the movies let us know that there's so much more that goes on inside of us that we don't understand. You know, I had a friend um, in the Army. He's a really good family guy. We went, went through basic training together and then, you know, uh, worked together in the military for a while. He just had this other side of his personality where he had to go see prostitutes. And it was like he wasn't even conscious of the fact. He would switch a personality and he never told his wife. I was like, you know, Kevin, I think was his name, was like, you're not ever going to tell your wife that you sleep with all these different prostitutes? And he would just like avoid the subject. He didn't want to talk about it. And I, something I just, I never, I never would do. I mean, hey, I was a medic. <laughs> I had to take care of all kinds of STDs, you know, sexually tr transmitted diseases. And, you know, a lot of these guys that get these and women, they keep going over the border, keep going back to these prostitutes, <laughs> and they keep getting these infections over and over. Uh, and it's just like this, I, I'm not saying sleeping with a prostitute's bad, <laughs> maybe it's something, I have a couple of friends that, in the midst of their sorrow and loss, that's kind of how they got better. And you know, and I've known a couple of prostitutes, um, one, she was, she was kind of cool. She didn't just sleep with anybody, she had a clientele, and she helped help the people she slept with. She loved, she loved a few of them. I, I, I don't know, it's a, I don't want to go into, <laughs> other than the fact that we do these things we're not always aware of. Commit murder, you know, Jack the Ripper's a famous one. He was probably this very high-class, well-known physician, surgeon, we know he's a surgeon because of what he'd done to his victims. Most people that knew him publicly maybe even privately had no idea you know ted bundy we know these are things that horrify us and and, and when we and you know it's interesting when you're around people that have these really distinct split personalities they're not aware of well, and they do crazy wild stuff that scares you when you're with them you know and then and then they switch their personalities <laughs> but yeah, that's what depth psychology started looking into hypnotism and uh, you know, how, how things can influence somebody that you think's one way and they do something completely, completely different. But we have this whole hidden iceberg in our life that for one reason or another is underneath the surface. I spent years in Zen after I got home from, from the war I was in and, and 
after I had some extreme traumas in my life, the suicide of my father, um, the death of my sister. Um, Zen was one of these beautiful ancient processes that allowed me to heal in a way nothing else could have. Simply because uh, you have a Roshi that guides you through this process of healing, of letting go, of opening yourself up to something that's beyond yourself. And one of the things, at least I had to deal with, was all the suppression that the culture I grew up, grew up in has, you know, has, and that I learned. The things you don't talk about, the things that are in there that, you know, you don't, you know, the pain, the perversion, the things that you press, push down, and, and don't think about. I could literally do a 10-episode a, a series on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, about close friends and people that have lived in this world of dual personalities or even more than that, of suppression, of doing things they don't know why they're doing it. You know, it's connected to all these traumas. So, yeah, we have all these things for good and for, you know, and for the worst and for fear and for love and buried inside of us. And sometimes that can be not too healthy, and sometimes it can be beautiful. As an artist, um, that's where I get a lot of my motivation and my creativity is going into the memory. As, you know, I spent these years in, in Zen, in the Zendo, meditating, doing Zazen, in this deep, profound uh, state where all these things rise up since you've been a child. And, and, and they're connected. One memory is connected to another memory, is connected to another memory. And there's all these knots that we tie inside of ourselves. And, and at least the Zen I was in teaches you how to sorrow and how to cry. For the first time for me, it was the first time crying about things I didn't even realize were there. And, and it was hard. And you know, there's all these emotions that you release when you learn to cry, when you, when you come to terms with, with things that's happened to you, when you learn to laugh. And I had to do, I had to do that or I would be dead. I would have, yeah, I mean, it was a vital lifeline when I walked into the Zendo and my Roshi-to-be gave me a big hug and said, I still remember, he's like, you came here because you had to, didn't you? Um, no, and he's like, Dave, why are you here? He said, because you, you have something you need to do, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, so you came here because you had to. And I was like, yeah, it's my last choice. You know, this is a, um, it was, it, it was something I did, I found very unpleasant at first. But un, and tying these knots inside of myself and, and coming to terms with, with things in my life that I hadn't, um, suicide of a father, um, all this grief that my poor mother had to go through for many years. And there's just all these things each of us have inside of us but I I was in such a huge crisis that I had to come to terms with these or be dead and so um, yeah sleeping with the dead I think more so um, so you know after after Tiva passed I just found myself um, I don't know she's just <laughs> it's so real she's still there she's still warm I can feel her I can I can touch her even though I know she's this is one of those unusual experiences I don't know if the memory is so established and so ingrained in you you know there's the pathways in your brain that you can it, it's just so easy to create that person every 
you know every square inch of their body you know every square inch of their personality and so um it's an interesting thing i and i i mean how much don't you do it and how much should you and you know there's all these stories about um if you get too detained with the dead, especially in ancient culture and tribal systems, then they, they steal you away. Little by little, you start living with the dead, and it goes back to the Soma Sema, you know, the body is a tomb. Are you uh, the walking dead simply because you can't feel your life anymore? Simply because there's so much sorrow inside of you uh, and trauma that's so locked away, you you feel dead you are dead you're not you know you're not really yourself uh, or the person that you could be and and so yeah this is a very complex subject huh <laughs> sleeping with the dead memories uh, of like the silent film Pandora's box with the beautiful Louise Brooks in it the way she moves and the emotions that she expresses she had already walked into the modern age of acting long before anyone else ever had simply because she had the heart she was she had been on stages and dances and you know performing for people for a long time and so when she got in front of a camera the camera wasn't there so in in reality you know louise brooks is gone she's a ghost on the cell on the celluloid on the film I think that film used to run 18 frames a second, 24 frames a second if it's film, 30 frames a second. Uh, and now video is running at 260 frames a second because you get this real incredible clarity. You know, sometimes it's so so clear that it's ridiculous. You know, that the light's so bright that you're not even getting reality there um, at all. Um, that's a problem with being in the digital world with goggles on all the time is your eyes have this it's too bright you come out of a movie uh, especially a really powerful digital movie and you're kind of blind you can't really take that brightness for too long and unless we evolve and, and some uh, uh, eye specialists now are saying we're actually getting a, a second eyelid that helps with us when we're on computers and looking at cell phones yeah you should read there's some interesting articles on that but you know, like when I was a kid with my mom. Hey, mom, well, they can't be dead because I'm watching them on the, in this movie. And, and it's the same way with a memory, especially of someone that you loved uh, romantically or, 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 or a, a son or a daughter or a father. Uh, you have these, these pictures. You have these distinct memories in your mind, and you can replay them over and over. I mean, a lot of times that's, that's what happens when we go to sleep. Oh, yeah, you forgot about all that. Um, is suppressed, you don't have to think about it, and then your dream goes, you know, um, hey, I'm the unconscious, or whatever you want to call it, and I'm not, I don't have all these rules and laws, and, you know, it's in your culture, your religion, I'm just going to throw this stuff at you. You know, the, uh, your boss, uh, this beautiful woman that's your boss, you, you're attracted to her, and uh, you fight that attraction because she's married, and, uh, and, you know, you don't think about it, because you're, you're moral, it's against your religion, it's against your ethics to to think too much about her and she's attracted to you you know this goes on at the workplace a lot and you go to sleep one night and you have this you know this very powerful dream she's naked you're, you're in bed with her you guys make love all night long uh, and it's very real and, and then you wake up and you're like oh my god i just seen my boss completely naked you know and sometimes these affairs actually take place 
in the workplace and they're almost unconscious. It's, it's amazing uh, what people will do in the workplace. And, and, and then after they're not together as employees or, or later they go through this whole sexual relationship that's crazed and, you know, and then after this, it's over uh, and the job's done, there's no attraction anymore. So there's all these things we do. But ghosts on the film, ghosts in our memory... Uh, the ability to act out situations that we can't, you know, your dreams are, you know, we have all these things down inside of us. Even had a friend, he dreamed of murdering his boss in detail night after night. <laughs> really graphic, he shared it with me. And of course, you know, we both agreed that that was just kind of like, um, he was he was suppressing all this anger he had towards her because she would just do these awful things to him. <laughs> she cut his pay, made him do these horrible... Uh, it's actually in my, in my book, Timelines or Sarah, the first part. Um, I kind of like fictionalize it, but um, yeah, he didn't want to sleep with her and she wanted to sleep with him and, and, and he was married. And so this whole situation played out where she just she's like okay you don't like me then I'm gonna make your job really hard sleeping with the dead I mean I mean what does that mean I mean you've been with the person for so long and you're so used to them being there and you're in love with them like I said you know every square inch of their body their personality how they react how their lips feel their hands feel um, you just you can everything's there and whether you want to or not, that person appears. They, they come back after they're dead. Or, or they left you. Or they're gone. They're not, they're not returning. Uh, something's happened. They're, they're no longer there. But you have all these substantial memories. And suddenly, they're severed. You know, suddenly, it, you know, the reality of that person is not there anymore. But you have all these po this poignant memories left there for one reason or another and they keep coming back and you know you just can't push that away you can it may be consciously but that memory exists inside of you in your dreams uh, in the way you react the anger that you have um, you know if you've been to a war if you've been in a real you know as I said before a really tragic situation you lock the box consciously but you know it's still it's still going underneath the surface that was one of the most unusual things I found when I would sit for hours and hours in Zazen meditation on these cushions up in this beautiful empty room with these varnished wood floors and the Buddha over there, especially in the, in the night hours in the early morning when there's no light in there and there's a few other, um, you know, Zen students or, or priests or even a teacher in there and it's just completely silent and you just, you go into these memories, they just come up out of you. You just let them come up. There's no... There's no forbiddance. Whatever is there, it comes up. It may be things that you've pushed down for years. It's surprising. It's amazing. The things that, you know, that you think that you've got over and you haven't. The anger you have. And um person you loved and did something awful to, left him behind. Uh, the animal that, that got hurt the sadness of a relationship breaking up and you've forgotten about it somehow and it all comes up you know in these early morning hours all these all these things that are locked in there and there and, and I, I don't think it's tr asking to traumatize yourself I think a lot of these these connections and memories ask they ask for um, for you to, to recognize them and to look at them and maybe say hey you know you need to cry a little bit or you need to get some anger out here or, or your, your friend in the war that got killed. 
you know, and, and, or, or committed suicide later on when you got home. And, and you, you just didn't want to think about it too much anymore. And all the memories when you're playing cards together, solitaire, and you're out in the, in the field, as we call it in the Army, and the, and, you know, the artillery rounds are going off, and there's explosions, and the nights that you spent together talking about your family and all these different things that, you know, that were kind of secret, that you finally had a friend you could talk to them about and share them about, and how you would cry and laugh and go on and on all those memories are <laughs> suddenly disconnected when that person dies commits suicide or, or, or like my father waiting and waiting for him this memory kept coming up over and over in my in my zazen settings this memory of waiting for my father in the front yard when I was five years old waiting for him to come back where's my dad you know and so it was just day after day and finally my mom you know she'd come and get me and hold me in arms and say David, your dad's not coming back. He's, he's not, you know, you, know you, you don't understand that. And, and, and as you grow up, that keeps going. That memory keeps replaying itself over and over and over. And that leads to what I was saying was interesting. The longer sessions I would do in Zazen, I was surprised to see that, these, that you keep dreaming, that your dreams don't shut off. They're actually way underneath the surface and they're playing out especially these loop memories are playing out. That was one of the early fascinations I had in my art was experimental film and just taking these very unnarrative pieces of memory and constructing them and putting music to them and then showing that as a film at, at, at an art center or at the university. You know, and some of them are pretty po poignant. They really got people. I even got some people crying over just a little 30-second memory of a mother and a child. And, and then, you know, you just... I think, I think that you know that these ghosts that we have inside of us, this uh, sleeping with the dead, this being with the dead, you know, and the dead being things that are we don't we put away that are gone. We think they're not there anymore. I, I think one of the most poignant memories I had in, in a zazen session, and this is after a long time, because my Roshi kept saying, Dave there's stuff you need to like come to terms with because you know you, you talk to your teacher about some of these things that you're you're doing when you're in Zazen and he kind of guides you through the process and you know he might say let it go just let it come up and don't react to it or he may say you need to react to this and one of these memories that kept coming up was this I seen this little boy and he'd be in the distance playing in the playground uh, or he'd be with his mother I couldn't tell who the mother was but I kept avoiding him because I kept feeling this tremendous amount of pain and I didn't understand why. You know, rationality kind of goes out the window when you have these very poignant emotional um, situations. And, you know, I just, I had these, these things that I built up that you're taught to build up, you know, when you're in, in your culture and in your religion, you, you push them away. And um, finally, after, I think it was after two years, actually, the, the little boy kept getting closer and closer and then, you know, in, in, in the Zazen, it was so clear. It was like he was actually there. I looked at him and was like, oh my God, it's me. That's, and, and the little boy said, you know, you're all grown up and you don't have the ability to give me a hug. To, to cry for the things I went through when I was small. You're such a big, strong man, you know. I need you to cry right now. And so, you know, <laughs> and this happens a lot in these, 
in these in these uh, zendos. You know, you hear people crying. Some people even screaming or getting up and running, because you know these these deep memories are there. And that's why you have a roshi. That's why you have a teacher. That's why you have a clinical psychologist. That's why you have a a spiritual leader to help you through the process of some of these very poignant things. And I think the point here, and maybe this whole program is. Um, Actually, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what the point is. Other than my girlfriend's dead. <laughs> See, I'm laughing, but I, I don't laugh. I cry a lot. I just can't put it away. Not right now. I have to work through a process. It's getting a little bit easier each day. Um, but I, I have to work through a grieving process. I just can't shut that off. Not, not, yeah. Even if I want to shut it off, it comes up in my dreams. There's Tiva in my dream. Hi, Dave. I miss you. Give me a kiss. And I feel the warmth of her body and her, you know, her head on your shoulder. And then you wake up and she's done. <laughs> you know, the forbidden thought put away the dead, bury him. And yet, this question, Soma Sima. I'm, you know, you're at the grave of the ancestor, of your friend, you know, in ancient Greece, you're standing there, Soma Sima, and the, and the dead, you know, he kind of points his, she, or she points her finger and says, yes, I'm dead, but I think you're dead, more than me even. You have a body, are you living your life? You're so depressed, you're so, you're so, everything's so suppressed, so, you know, pushed down inside of you, you're dead. You, and, and, and you might as well, be dead like me. And you know, Soma Sima, what are you doing with your life? Are you living it fully? Even in the midst of your heartbreak and your tragedy, can you be reborn again? Can you open yourself up to this beautiful process of life, which a lot of times is extremely painful? And it takes time to arrive at that. I'm not saying go out and do, face your most painful and greatest fear. People are always talking about, don't fear this, you know, I'm not a, don't think, fear's a horrible thing. <laughs> I think it is if you're obsessed with it, if it takes over, you know, and you can't react. But fear is also a teacher. I, you know, I learned that in airborne school, para, paratrooper school. If you're not afraid to be on here and afraid to jump out of that plane, you're out of here. Because that's when you get careless, that's when you do stupid things, that's when you're not prepared and somebody gets killed or you get killed or I get killed. Because, you know, the jump master is the one that, you know, taps you out of the plane. Because the fear stops you from reacting. But then he turn around and say, but the fear also causes you to be very cautious and to know exactly what you need to do because you know you're going to die. So there's, you know, fear can be a good thing. It can teach us to be prepared. It can teach us to, you know, the pain of, of touching the hot plate on the stove we know if we do it enough uh, it hurts so there's a little bit of a fear in there there's a little bit of fear is you know a good athlete even has fear in, in boxing or wrestling you have a little bit of respect fear teaches you respect not too much but you know I, I just have a hard time with the sticker on the back of cars that say you know no no bad days and I'll be like well you know that's bullshit because you're gonna have bad <laughs> days whether you want to or not the, the question is how are you gonna work through that process and if you keep su suppressing these things the, this conscience that you have is something maybe you did wrong and you keep suppressing it and pushing it under or these urges you have um, 
there's maybe there's better ways to work that out and to realize that was one of the things my Roshi said you're you know because I had this this thought that kick the the thing in the uh, at least the Zen process and the Zendo I was in was look at have sex with that woman and then but beyond the pleasure and, and, and read you know and resisting the evil and the, and the temptation of, of yes I want to sleep with her also go beyond that and see what happens after you've done that after you slept with that person after you've whatever if you want to call adultery or fornication or just sensual lust you know what happens to your wife what happens to your family so the the, the 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 process was yeah don't suppress it but work through it and see what the end result could be and you know that what what the tragedy could be you know if you if you kill someone or if you beat the hell out of them you know and give them a concussion go beyond the urge and see what it actually what the results of that urge would be and you know the more you play through these situations then I think the less it you know it just it, it's not a temptation anymore uh, I think when you can when you can see that instead of resisting it and you know the thing you resist gets stronger and stronger don't don't you know my mom said I got a bunch of hot cookies in that jar they're not for you they're for your sister and I don't want you, I don't want you eating anymore so you keep your hand out of the cookie jar when you spend the rest of the day just thinking about these wonderful yummy cookies in the jar and that night when everybody's in bed you sneak in there and you grab some cookies out of there. I'm not saying it's bad but I'm saying when you resist something and resist it it just becomes stronger and stronger <laughs> sometimes. Alright, it's things to think about. So somewhere in there you have to stop being with the dead but I think some you have to stop being in the past and living in the present. I know that but you also have to identify with the pain and the loss and work through it. And it can be a long process, and we all need help doing that. All right, I hope I got some, and I hope I brought up some interesting thoughts here. Um, and I've been closing out these last several broadcasts of saying, Tiba, I love you, and I miss you. I miss your touch and feel. And uh, I know that um, I'm praying that I can let you go little by little and I think that's what's happening but not the heart of you the heart of you will always be with me alright so have a nice day and we're going to take off now the sun is all the way up and we're ready for a new day take care take care of yourself love you and this is In Between Stations Radio signing off the air
Delta, Echo Lima, Delta, Echo This is In Between Stations Radio Broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA